Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. Sean Hoover first piloted the Navy's version of the Black Hawk helicopter, known as the Seahawk. He left the Navy to become an ATF agent and was simultaneously a member of the Army National Guard, now flying Apache helicopters. His unit was activated for deployment to the Gulf War. In 2007, under insane weather conditions, his Apache crashed in the Tora Bora Mountains of Afghanistan disintegrating into a fireball. Sean and his co-pilot were severely injured. Taliban fighters located their crash site and were on the hunt for the pilots. Sean's survival depended on his ability to escape and evade the enemy. This is his story in his own words. Sean was exposed to a military and law enforcement life at an early age. Sean attended the Virginia Military Institute with an eye on becoming a pilot. and there was a, you could hear him coming from 
gooey, that real low boop, boop, boop. And um, this, they would come over the pond and they would go into a heavy turn to the left and, and head out west off of the farm. And uh, I was laying there and this dude came over and he went into this heavy turn and I could see the guy and he kind of like looked down at me and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And so that was, I kind of at that point thought, you know what, that'd be really cool to fly helicopters. And um, when I was in high school, a uh, buddy and I were talking about becoming pilots and, and doing that sort of thing. And so we decided, you know, hey, let's let's look at going to college to do, you know, to, to fly. And by that point, we'd kind of, by the time I was in high school and stuff, we kind of worked at, okay, we're going to go fly jets and, and do that. And so he went to Virginia Tech Corps of Cadets, and I, you know I kind of a, a common pattern through my life. I stupidity or whatever. I'm not real sure, but I've always felt like there is there's got to be somebody that's nudging me along one way or another because I I kind of fall into stuff that I don't really deserve, but. Lo and behold, I was like, hey, you know, I'll put my stuff in. So I applied to a bunch. I applied to Naval Academy. I applied to UVA. I applied to VMI and Virginia Tech and a, and a couple others. Um, and uh, lo and behold, got accepted to VMI. So it, at, at first, it was kind of a, you know, it was just me being a, a, a you know, unplanned uh, individual and, and kind of lucked into it. And then once I got accepted at that, I kind of started looking at the specifics of it and found out how many people in, in my local area were BMI alumni and stuff. And then realized what a cool, uh, experience it was. And, um, so I got, got accepted there. And then that's kind of when I realized, Hey, I've kind of blundered into this and this would be a good way to get to what, you know, to become a pilot and that sort of thing. So it was, to be quite honest, it was me being an idiot kind of blundering into it. He joined the Navy and fell in love with helicopters. When I graduated from BMI in 1990 and I was kind of on the tail end of the, the Reagan area era. So the, you know, the spigot was open for military and, and pilots and that sort of thing. So I got down to Pensacola uh, on the 25th of May, 1990. And um, we, because there were so many pilots, they had what was called a stash program. So they just found odd jobs for you to do and that sort of thing. And um, we, we were down there for almost a year to the day. And then I went to uh, Corpus Christi to do my basic training, um, got selected for helicopters, so then wound up coming back to Florida, uh, Milton, Florida, to do uh, advanced training for helicopters. And um, literally the day, the first day I got done training in helicopters, I knew I knew that was the right spot. It was it was an absolute blast. I mean. I, I, you know, struggled probably through flight school is, a, is minimizing it a little bit, but that day I had a blast. I was, I was in my, in my mind, I thought I'd done pretty well and 
Um, so I got selected for um, Seahawks, you know, the Navy's version of a Blackhawk, and um, got accepted for uh, the Bravo model, which was the Navy's version that flew off of the small ships, the cruisers, the frigates, and um, uh, that sort of, you know, ship versus they had a Foxtrot model that flew off of carriers uh, when I was in it. Sean's life in the Navy took him to the four corners of the earth. It was fantastic. Um, I got, we, when, I, when I was in, um, we were doing all kinds of missions. We did uh, counter-drug missions down in the Caribbean. Um, we got, you know, when, when I was at um, HSL 48, uh, at the Vipers out in Mayport, Florida, we were getting one or two long cruises which was a six-month cruise for us, um, and we were getting counter-drug ops and, and other things. From what I understand, that changed a little bit later on. But, you know, we were getting to see all kinds of, of operations and getting to see, I mean, just vast parts of the, of the world that, you know, you normally didn't get to see. I, the first thing I did was a counter-drug op, so we were down in the Caribbean bouncing around, um, we actually got involved in the, when Haiti had its embargo going, we, we were down there on that and then finished up doing counter drug ops, um, got to go into, uh, Venezuela and that sort of stuff when it was back before all the issues down there started. And, um, then I got to do a couple long cruises, which were, you know, amazing. I went over and did a, uh, an op, uh, a mission in, um, Red Sea for a number of years, um, for a number of months, and then we went up and did um, some time up in Norway and got to do the first um, meeting of Russian ships and U.S. ships um, after the, the Cold War ended. Uh, so that was that was kind of neat, and um, that that um, deployment. There were, I think it was like 12 nations that we had in that group of ships. We had Italians, we had Norwegians, we had Americans, and um, just ship after ship after ship. Some of them weren't there for the whole thing, but they would all the all the um, the ship guys would get together and they would do all these huge maneuvers of you know you'd have 10 or 15 ships lined up doing these maneuvers across the the ocean and stuff and it, we kind of got a you know a bird's eye view if you will of, of that going on it was incredible because when they first started out you're thinking eh, that didn't, that's not looking real great but i mean literally two or three days into it these ships are passing within you know less than 100 yards of each other and and for ship drivers that's a that's a huge thing you know they you start getting too close in the ship and guys start getting nervous for obvious reasons but it, it was incredible but I got to see, you know, all kinds of parts of the world, Iceland and Venezuela and Barbados and Jamaica and Bahamas and all kinds of parts of the Med. Got to go to Haifa, Israel and France and stuff. And those are things that I don't think, you know, you just don't get to do if you're not involved in something like that. Sean left the Navy with a new focus on becoming a law enforcement pilot. First and foremost, 
uh, HSL 48 for maybe a year or two and, you know, kind of where you start, you know, getting your feet under you where you're now you're kind of in the main mix of, of the pilots and stuff. Cause when you first get there, you know, you just kind of, you're kind of on the fringes kind of learning what, what not to say, what to do, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, there was a guy that left the unit. He was a senior pilot, had gotten out and went to fly, uh, for HRT, um, in Virginia. And he had stayed in contact with some of the other pilots. And so he was kind of giving us play by play of what he had gone through and, and that sort of thing. And some guys were thinking, hey, you know, that, that sounds pretty cool. So we, we were all talking about, hey, you know, maybe that's an option. And, um, so we started kicking that around, um, and at some point I had learned about, uh, kind of to backstep a little bit, when I was in VMI, one of my good friends, his dad was an OB-10 Bronco pilot, and he, one night we were sitting around uh, over drinks, and he was telling us stories about Vietnam and flying OB-10s, and, and uh, it kind of really romanticized the, the whole thing, and so at some point I found out that ATF flew OB-10 Broncos, and I thought that is that is the coolest thing in the world. I get to basically, you know, kind of do one of the things that I thought would would be neat in the military, and now you know apply it to that law enforcement itch that I that I had, and um, so I started that process of of coming in and um, actually applied to be a pilot. So I was um, I was actually working for State Department uh, when that happened. Um, I had applied to ATF before that, um, probably a year and a half before that, and was working with them. And then got the call that hey, you're you know you've been accepted. And I was a was probably a, a well over halfway through it um, when I got informed that. Yeah, the, the pilot program had been shut down, and, and uh, you know, if you want it, you can come in as a regular agent, which in the long run worked out better anyway, but that's kind of how it, again, you know, uh, uh, I can't help but think that I've got some angel watching over me that kind of allows me to fumble into stuff that I don't deserve or, you know, haven't earned. But Now an ATF agent and National Guard Apache pilot. Sean was in control of one of the military's most lethal and complex to operate weapons. Apaches are the Army's uh, attack helicopter. And um, at the time when, when I was, was starting the process, I believe there were three or four National Guard uh, units that, that still had them. That has changed um, over about the last 10 years. They kind of pulled that out of the National Guard and brought it back to active army. But the Apache um, is 
millimeter gun on the front. Um, same caliber as like an A10 gun or uh, round, but shorter and stuff, obviously. But uh, it's just a devastating round. Um, it has rockets and also um, Hellfire missiles. Uh, and the, the Apache has two stub wings on the... Uh, on it, and those the gun is always under the front, but the rockets and the hellfires can be configured according to you know whatever your mission is. Um, in Afghanistan, we because it was so high and, and hot over there, we usually limited what we were flying with, and um, you know you'd have an an accoutrement of rockets depending upon what your mission was. rockets, you may have flechette rockets, you may have um, uh, HE rockets, or you may have uh, Willie P rockets or white phosphorus rockets, really dependent upon what, you know, what your mission was, and then usually you'd fly with a couple hellfires, um, and then depending upon what your fuel configuration was, you'd have a certain amount of, of 30 millimeter we had the ability to put in a, uh, an additional tank for fuel that would give you extended duration of flying and that cut down on the number of rounds you could have. So really depending upon what your mission was, you configured the aircraft for, you know, for best, best results in, uh, during the mission. And, you know, we would, uh, we would normally have, you know, a few hundred rounds, you know, anywhere from, you know, 19 to 30 so rockets, and then a couple Hellfire was kind of the general, what we flew around with at the time. The Apache had a, a, a system on the front that allows the, the pilots to basically fly in complete darkness. Um, it's a, a FLIR system that... Um, you know, operates off of heat, and uh, you have uh, an HDU, or a, basically what you see in the jet, you know, a heads-up unit that normally sits on the dashboard of a jet, you have sitting in front of your eye. And it, that is no small feat. Anybody that has learned to fly by looking into a picture that is literally an inch from your right eye and take that information and, and process it and not run into something is is no small feat within itself that I have the utmost respect for those guys and um, it's a little different you know some of the other helicopters uh, fly off of MBGs which is still very very difficult um, but a little different in the sense that your world, uh, the best I can describe it is your world, you know, around you feels a little bit bigger than when you're looking through that, you know, that one monocle that's attached to your helmet. Um, it, uh, the, the beauty of both the uh, Apache and, uh, and the uh, Black Hawk is you've got, you know, other crew members for the Apache, you have another pilot, and then for, you know, for the Black Hawk, you've got 
reason that you know the pilots have certain rules about how much sleep they have to get and that sort of, of thing and that's that's just a small portion of it to keep you know to try to keep your mental fitness uh, as sharp as you can and then obviously most of the guys and gals are um, you know they have some sort of physical fitness regime as well because it you know on some of those missions you're sitting in those cockpits for especially the the uh, Blackhawk guys that those those individuals um, they flew for hours and hours and hours of you know either transporting stuff around or providing cover or doing medevac situations and things like that just just phenomenal uh, amount of flight time and and that it just tears on your body um, so if you're not in you know in physical fitness or in physical shape as well it, it it can do just as much damage as being tired or or you know being overwhelmed and uh, you just it's one of those things that you learn as a as a junior pilot one you learn uh, to communicate uh, a lot better in the cockpit that you know everything is you you're you're letting the rest of the crew no matter how big they are whether it's one or four or whatever you're letting them know that you know what you're doing what you're seeing and you know what's going on and um, when I was in the Navy and was was teaching new pilots um, that was one of the first signs that individuals were getting overwhelmed as their communication would slow down or stop and that's when you knew that they were they were trying to process something and and if they weren't talking about it then it was probably getting to the point of getting overwhelming for them and so you would kind of uh, you know spur them a little bit and kind of ask them and, and that sort of thing so communicating was one and then um, you learn to basically delegate you know things and trust your trust your other crew members you, you've got to you've got to trust them that you know when they're taking care of something it's going to get done right and, and that's that's not unlike you know any other job that you perform in in some of those situate you know high stress situations that you gain that trust um, over time of working with people and and um, so that's that's kind of the way you mitigate some of that stuff during the daylight hours. Uh, flying is is more fun unless you're getting shot at and um, and then at nighttime you have to really be on your game, um, whether you're, you know, flying MEGs or, or uh, FLIR. In 2005, Sean was deployed to the Gulf War and began flying support and direct action missions in Afghanistan. Found out in late uh, 2005 that uh, we, would, we would be deploying, and our, our deployment was going to be a little bit different because my unit was switching over from Alpha Model Apaches to Delta Model Apaches. And so we were going to do about a nine-month turn um, learning how to 
On August 13, 2007, Sean was assigned a mission that was designed to capture Osama bin Laden. So we were like, absolutely, we're on board and let's do it. And 
in an IUD that had gone off and uh, had injured uh, an SF soldier. Um, and we were, that was actually one of the checkpoints on, on the route that just coincidentally happened in the same spot. Um, so we were like, okay, we're going to fly over that, we'll check that out, and then we'll proceed uh, down um, to Salerno. And it, it was probably about a 45-minute flight, give or take, and uh, if I remember correctly in a long time, but, um, so we were loaded with fuel and loaded with, with weapons. And, uh, when we, we decided, Kim was like, Hey, you take lead. And I was like, so we, which is kind of how we were operating that night. And, um, we took off. Um, I had, um, Garrett Radigan was my front seater and, um, trying to remember who, Ken's front seater was. I can see his face. I can't remember his name right this second. But so we took off. We weighed, um, you know, right around twenty three thousand pounds, and that was inclusive. So that was everything: the bird, the fuel, and and all the armament. And um, we, I remember Ken and I discussing that at you know at ten thousand feet that gave us about 4% torque available, um, which we didn't normally operate at that, at that altitude, but it was just something that we took note of when we took off. And, um, as we, as we left, uh, Jalalabad, we, uh, we'd flown maybe 10 or 15 minutes. We were actually approaching where the IED had gone off. And, um, I could tell that one of the checkpoints was this huge 14,000-foot mountain, and I could see weather forming around the mountain. And so I called back to Ken and said, hey, it looks like there's weather on the route. And he goes, yeah. And so we discussed there's there were other routes, especially, you know, we followed the, the 60s and the 47s around so much, and those individuals knew I mean, they knew every little uh, saddle or, you know, uh, wash and stuff in that from getting from point A to point B. And, and there was a, a route that we had followed um, those individuals <laughs> up and down before. And, and I said, hey, you remember that saddle at the end of, of this valley right here? And he said, yeah, yeah. And I said, that dumps into the big valley, and then it's one hop over the mountains, and we're, we're in Salerno. And he said, yep. So that was the route that we we chose to go and um, we weren't flying very fast um, because uh, of the weather. You know, we were trying to get all of our ducks in a row. Um, I had my front seater looking up uh, um, MSL basically along the route, which was the minimum safe level that we could fly at um, and stay clear of obstacles and that sort of thing. And we were, you know, we were very chatty on calling out, you know, item or uh, obstacles along the way, you know, hey, here's this, here's that, here's that. And, um, so we we were making our way down the valley, and right near the end of the valley, there was a, a dog leg that was, if I remember correctly, maybe a, maybe a half mile long before it turned into a box end right at the, at the base. And it was, the box was basically cornered by two pretty large mountains and uh, but there was a saddle right prior to that that you would dump down into and it would put you right into the next 
with a FLIR system, at least we had a legacy system. The new system is much better, but the old legacy system, when you started going IFR, it literally looked like somebody was pouring milk over your lens. It, it started to get like a, a very light greenish color, and so I could see it coming. You could see it happening, and so I called my front seater and said, hey, I'm, I'm punching in, which meant we were, I was going IFR. I was going to have to start flying by instruments, which the Apache was not rated for at the time. And I'm not sure if it is now, but, um, so I, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm punching in back here. And Ratty was flying under MDGs. Um, and he said, okay, I've got the ground. So I transferred control to him and you know, as I mentioned before, you know, everything is very verbal. And so we did a, a three-way control transfer, which was like, Roger, you've got the controls. And then he, Roger, back, I've got the controls. And um, so I started reaching up to move my HDU, which was the, you know, the little monocle that was on my eye. I went to slide that out of the way and bring down my MVGs just to get out of, uh, you know, of, uh, of the weather. And I had called back to Ken and said, hey, we, you know, we're punching in here. And he said, yep, roger that. And he said, uh, you know, we're turning 180. You can fall in on me, which meant I would fly in behind him and, and he would take lead back to Jalalabad. We were going to RTB to Jalalabad and, uh, you know, we'd fix it in the morning type of thing. And um, we were in uh, about three quarters of the way through a, a 180 turn. And I heard Ratty say, I've lost the ground, I've lost the ground. And his voice was very elevated, you know, as, as anybody's would be. And, and I, I knew then that, you know, we had, we, the entire bird, we'd gone IFR completely. And um, so I moved my leg uh, over, my left leg over the collective because everybody's by and large, natural tendency is when you lose the ground, you know, you, you want to get away from it. So people start pulling in power. And because of the discussion that Ken and I had had, I knew we didn't have a whole lot of power to pull um, at that altitude. And so I tried to move my leg over the collected to keep it from going any higher. And um, it would, he had pulled in a, enough collected that the, the bird, who we affectionately called Bitch and Betty, started telling us low rotor, low rotor. So not to get too technical, but um, on a helicopter, you have a certain amount of power that, uh, which when you increase that collective, that increases the pitch on the blades. And there's a point where the pitch on the blades is as good as it's going to get. You're not going to get any more. And then at that point, you start slowing down the engine. And so... He had reached that point. I pulled my MBGs up, dropped my HDU, and had reached down uh, for the collective and the cyclic. And I said, I've got the controls. And he, I don't remember whether it was a positive transfer or not. And um, Ratty yelled out, you're in a dive, you're in a dive. And... Uh, and this all kind of compressed. I'm not sure what the, you know, what was in front of what, but the next thing that I remembered was seeing tree limbs go through my my right eye. So 
basically the front of the bird was was going through trees or bushes or whatever. And um, one of the things that we had watched prior to going or getting deployed was there were a couple accidents over in Afghanistan that uh, Apaches had literally run into mountains, and, and uh, the, it always ended in the front seat or getting killed. And that was my it, it just stuck with me. I thought about it all the time. And um, that, so when I, when I saw those trees, uh, that was the first thing that thought my the first thing that popped across my mind was, Jesus, we're going to run into the mountain, and I'm going to kill Ratty. And uh, so I yanked up on the collective and pulled back on the cyclic, and um, we basically did what I could only describe as a as a pirouette in a helicopter. So I literally pulled the new nose straight up. Uh, we kind of turned about, from what I have heard, uh, about maybe 45 to 90 degrees, and then it kind of settled on its tail, and uh, the tail folded up against the right side of the bird. And um, we hit... Um, we rolled over uh, three or four times, roughly, and then uh, because of the, the steepness of the mountain that we were on, we actually literally started sliding backwards down the mountain um, for maybe five or six seconds, and then we, it, I just remember it came to a, like a real easy stop uh, sitting on the mountain. Now downed, Sean worked to regain control of his situation and assess his survivability. The engine, um, the engines are designed or supposed to uh, shut down what we call a high side. Um, they're supposed to basically cut off the fuel and shut down. Uh, I had uh, sheared off all but about, you know, maybe four feet of rotor blade, and um, but both engines were screaming. Um, because now they had no, you know, nothing on them and they were just roaring. I was concerned. First and foremost, I looked forward and was checking to see because I, Ratty wasn't moving. His head was tilted to the right and he wasn't moving. And, um, so I was yelling for him. I made a call out to Ken to tell him that we were on the ground, but we were okay. And, um, and trying to shut off the engines and, um, kind of very rapidly, you know, I saw Ratty's head start to move, so I knew he was alive, and um, and then my concern was shutting off the engines because I was scared that they were going to blow up. And um, so got through, got those shut off. Ratty and I uh, got out, and, and part of the you do a brief um, prior to every flight, and you know part of that is in the incidents of a downed helicopter, you're going to meet in a particular area, and we had briefed that. Ratty got out very rapidly and came around and was actually looking through the top of the, the cockpit at me and was telling me that the aircraft was on fire and I needed to get out. And uh, so I got out of the bird. Um, I had a pretty significant go bag in the back aft storage of the bird. Um, I was going to try to get a hold of that. That had extra MDGs and food and clothing and extra round uh, magazines for the the M4s that we were carrying, and um, so I tried to go to the left side of the bird, and it was on fire in front of the aft storage, so I ran around to the 
wasn't there. At least from what I what I perceived, I was in the right spot. So I yelled to him very quickly and said, you know, Ratty, and uh, I, my head was still bad. I had split both eyes open, or, you know, eyebrows were both split. And so I had blood in my eyes, and, and um, I'd taken a shot to the head, so I was, it was, you know, he yelled back, but I couldn't at the time, like, in my mind, locate where that sound came from. And he yelled again, and, and it started to kind of come in, and then I realized that he had moved. Uh, he was met where we were supposed to meet. He was just a little farther out than, than what I had thought. And so we, we, I went down and met up with him. And, you know, one of the first things you do is kind of assess your, your situation. So he and I were basically running through what we had. And uh, I didn't, my radio had come out at some point. I had my M4, but my pistol had gotten stuck underneath my seat. And, Ratty didn't have his M4, but he had his pistol. So we were trading magazines back and forth, and Ratty was a former ranger, so he literally had a chest full of uh, M16 magazines. And um, But he had his radio, so he handed me the radio. I started making uh, mayday calls, and we were just kind of getting situated. And then um, that's when we started hearing the, the voices. Sean realized that the Taliban fighters had quickly located his crash site. He went into an escape and evade mode. We decided, you know, we stopped making mayday calls and we pushed down a little further into a, a row of, of uh, pine trees. And um, then I continued the mayday calls. And we first person we picked up was a uh, A-10 driver and his um wing who luckily enough were, were sandy qualified, which meant they were combat search and rescue qualified which um in the air force that is a that's a huge deal and um which makes them very very organ they, they are trained to organize the scenario and the rescue scenario and everything and it, it it was a huge not only was it a huge um comfort that they were A-10s, but that he was was um, was Sandy qualified was just the you know icing on the cake, and um, so he was running through his process that he had to do to verify that we were real, and and then um, in the meantime, Ratty and I were trying to figure out where the voices were coming from, and and it was the the overall the the one thing I didn't see, the, the night. We called that that night was a black night, which meant that it was um, there was literally no moon, there was no illumination, which prevented a lot of the other birds from flying. So basically, only 
sounded like they were going, you know, tail overhead, you know, overhead as they went by, and um, it, it uh, that was probably the most chaotic portion of, of the evening. And then um, uh, the Sandy, he um, finally verified who we were, and um, he was in contact with another bird that was out that night. And they kind of triangulated, okay, we know where you are because of, you know, you're, we've talked to you, we've got your signal, everything's going well. And um, Sandy at that point decided um, he was going to come down and, and get my actual location down to, you know, Nat's ass accuracy. And so he and his wing basically set up a, a series of approaches on us that, each time he would come a little lower and, you know, I told him, Hey, the, the weather is literally right at the top of the mountain. And he, um, he kept lowering himself, lowering himself, lowering himself. And finally, you know, I, I told him I could hear him coming overhead, um, but I can't see him. And then, so finally, uh, which was, you know, pretty much unheard of at nighttime, he flew by and he turned on his beacon, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, he, you know, just put a big red target on himself. And um, so he flew by with his light on, and I could see it lightening up, lighting up the clouds. I called him on top, you know, and he, then I could hear him punch it, and he went back up to altitude. And at that point, he had us zeroed, and he said, you know, <laughs> he said, if, you know, if I have any issues to give me a bearing and direction and distance, and he would take care of any problems. And uh, that was the, at that point, that was, I kind of understood what those ground guys felt when we were, you know, when we were flying over them. That just, just put this kind of warm blanket over you and you knew everything was going to be okay. The next phase was for Sean to position himself for rescue.
an intelligence officer in Bagram, monitoring his efforts to escape, redirected Sean's route and helped him avoid a direct encounter with the enemy. Sandy was kind of leading us at first. He was giving us guidance. Um, and then later on, he got low on fuel and had to turn over to another uh, group of A-10s. Um, I'm not, I don't recall where in the route we were when that handoff happened. Um, but Sandy was basically leading us around the mountain. As I said, it was, it was literally pitch black in the and the slope on the mountain was so much that, so that you could almost stand up straight and reach out with your arm and touch the side of the mountain. That's, that's how steep it was. So it was, it was hard moving. Um, Ratty had banged his leg up really bad um, and had also uh, taken a shot to the throat. His, uh, his armor plating in the front had, um, had kind of come up and hit him. So he was having to deal with that as well as, you know, staying alert and that sort of thing. And so Sandy was moving us, was giving us guidance on how to get to um, what we perceived as a pickup point. And um, we, we moved around uh, the mountain. We, you know, we first went one direction and then, uh, then he basically said, no, stop that, you're going to go this direction. So we started moving in that direction, and, and as we were, were going, um, he jumped on the, on the radio real quick and was like, stop, stop, stop. And um, I could see, I was basically staying oriented according to where the, cause the, the bird was still burning, and so that's how I was kind of staying oriented on which direction we were going because it was so dark and found out, you know, just one other person in the in the whole grand scheme of it that, you know, directly saved our lives that night. There was a an intel officer in Bagram that happened to be watching the, the uh, some of the video that was going on and happened to pick up some of the bad guys that were around us. And at the time, it was unknown, but we were literally walking straight towards them. And uh, so then the A-10s turned us, basically were going to send us uh, all the way back the other direction. We were actually going to pass the bird and pass the area where we were before and go, you know, at least that far in the other direction. Um, so we started slowly moving across again. Ratty was, was having a hard time moving, and um, we, uh, at, at some point in there, um, I hear rotor blade noise. And um, I, one of the one of the groups that one of the '60s that was there with us uh, in Salerno, I, I I can literally see him. I can see his face uh, flying down this down this valley, and he's so close to him that I could probably hit him with a baseball. But he, it's so steep that he can't land, and um, it was. Uh, it, it is, it's a point where you're, you know, you're so exhilarated that we're, you know, we're probably going to get out of here. But at the same time, then when, then when he had to leave, it, it, it was, uh, it just sucks the wind out of your sails, you know? And, um, but he, he was looking for a place to land and, and I didn't, you know, of course you don't know anything that's going on with them, but basically what had happened, they had launched two sixties and two 
and the bird was the only one that really got to us and, and we could see him and um so as ratty and i were moving poland had to leave and he actually wound up picking up the other 64 pilots taking them back to salerno and while we're moving uh to this designated point um tony and his crew had gone back to basically get any updates and um while they were in there they were basically told that uh no other birds were taken off tonight. That was it. They, they, weren't, they were going to stop. The, the ground effort was going to continue, but the air effort was over. And uh, Tony, uh, being the type of individual that he was and his crew, um, basically decided that it didn't matter. They were coming to get us. So they, to the person, decided, you know, whatever happens, happens. We're going to get them. So they went out to the bird and uh, were getting ready to put themselves in a very, very bad spot to come get us. And uh, they got cleared to go ahead and take off and fly single ship to come get us because they knew exactly where we were. Um, what we didn't know at the time was they had dropped off two guys, um, a, a flight surgeon, um, our flight surgeon for the unit, and a uh, and a air crewman. And by that time, while all that was going on, they had located us and were basically taking us to the pickup point, which is where they had gotten dropped off. And um, so we we split up just in case we ran into the, the group that was um, up the mountain from us. And uh, we rallied back up very close to uh, the pickup point. And those two individuals uh, basically set up a perimeter around us Ratty and I, um, at that point, had been on the ground uh, probably close to seven hours or so. And um, so those two guys set up a perimeter and basically watched us um, until Tony got back and could pick us up. And uh, and we all got on the on the 60 and, and flew home. So uh, total total was about seven and a half hours on the ground. Um, but uh, I, I had, at that point, had no idea. If you'd have asked me, I'd have, I'd have said it was probably closer to four hours. The destruction of Sean's Apache helicopter was total. Yeah, when we took off, we were right around 23,000, which was, was fairly heavy for an Apache then. And um, when I, my, I had a very close friend that was the maintenance, maintenance officer, and he came to me um, once they had done the retrieval of the of the crash and they had, mine was uh, and basically a, a really big box that the 47 had picked up and brought back and he said it weighed out at just over 900 pounds so I, I left uh, or burned up you know roughly 22,000 pounds of ordnance and bird and fuel and everything on the side of that mountain um, it was could barely tell it was a helicopter you know the rotor blades was uh, was about the only thing that kind of gave it away sean believes that he has been surrounded by god's angels during his life at the, at the very beginning you know it, it, as i've gotten older i kind of think back on i think everybody does kind of reflects on their career and you know what they've done and, and not done and um i i can't help but think that I have, you know, some sort of 
way into positions that I didn't deserve or, in, you know, um, it, it, it has always, you know, things have always worked out um, one way or the other. And, um, you know, I, I can't help but think that, you know, my angel probably looks like he's just trained, changed the transmission on a, on a, uh, a garbage truck uh, in the city because I, I'm sure I have put him or her through some, some tough times keeping me out of scrapes. But I, the one thing that I, I do remember, um, and I, I've told a few people this, I think, just because of what, you know, what some may think, but um, right before, I, I knew that we were going to hit. And um, right before we hit, it was the it was the strangest feeling in the world. But it was like everything went quiet, everything went qu- calm, and I saw my wife's name uh, in my mind. That that was it. And then the next thing I remember is the bird rolling over. Um, repeatedly and then sliding backwards so um, I'm not a you know I tell people I'm not a I'm not a religious man but I'm a spiritual man you know I, I definitely believe there's a, a, a big game afoot and there are, are entities or entity that is leading us through it but um, I, I just can't help but think that that you know I'm, I'm a part of that because I asked Sean if he held the greatest regret or a greatest achievement. From a man who has had more, seen more, 
and survived more perilous adventures in life than most of us can imagine. Sean's advice to set an objective and be relentless in pursuing it is from a most credible source. I have never, and I, and I know, Bird, this rings true with you too, um, I've gone into a lot of things with, with really no plan. Um, you know, there, there was never like a backup plan of stuff. And I, I, it, it's got to be, you know, one, having the determination and grit uh, to hang in there, even when, you know, everything looks down and, and, you know, I don't know whether it's plan or, or not, but not having that backup plan, you know, you just, there's no other way. You have to keep moving forward. And I think for me, that's the biggest thing that I've learned through a lot of this is because there's been a lot of times where I, myself, have felt like I've, you know, I've gone as far as I can go. And it's usually a friend that has come along and said, hey, you know, hang in there a little more. So or my wife has come along and said, hey, you know, you've come this far, but her favorite term is they can't eat you, you know, and so I think that's the, the biggest thing is, you know, set your goal and and don't accept anything until you reach it. You know, it's, it's you can do it. It's just having that fortitude to, to hang in there even when everything seems like it's going downhill. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.